Good morning, everyone. You may have a seat. Or if you prefer, you can keep standing. It's fine. <laughs> well, it's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, this is, I don't know if you know, this is the last official week of summer. For those of you who don't care, I mean, I, anyone who has kids in school, we, we live our lives by the academic calendar. For those of you who don't, this is your last week of summer. So I love this kind of year. I actually... I love this time of year because I love when, you know, the weather starts changing. Here in San Diego, we drop from 80 to 75. You know, we start to feel that chill in the air and get ready for fall. It's fantastic. So, um, and, and this week, um, this is actually, my wife's um, up with the Rooted Group, but we, um, you know, it's, this is our 20th anniversary this week. So it's pretty cool that she's endured that much. Fortunately, we, we got married in Washington State where it's legal to be 13 when you're married. That's how, that's how we did <laughs> and Actually, um, so this is always for me kind of a fun time of year. It just represents change. It represents new beginnings. So today we are uh, beginning a series, a brand new series called God of Our Fathers. And this is actually a study in stories in the book of Genesis. And uh, what we're doing is I really, we're going to focus in, starting in chapter 12, we're going to kind of skip the beginning a little bit, we're going to address it a little bit today, but we're going to address and look at these stories of um, what's called the patriarchs of the faith, it's um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, we're going to read the stories, kind of go through their lives, but I want you to take note of something, we're calling this God of our fathers. This series is not about mankind, or about just these people and their story. This is a story of God. We believe if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then it stands to reason that the way he interacts with his creation has never changed. It's the same. And so we'll find encouragement in these stories. And, and the more we learn and, and study about them, you'll see that, hey, they're pretty messed up people, so there's hope for us today. And, and so our hope is that we can use this series to focus in on the God of their fathers, and what do we learn about his character. I believe the more and more we learn and shine the light on who God is, it causes us to respond. It causes us to be a different type of person, because of, and it starts um, with who God is. So that's what we'll be doing beginning here today. So pray with me as we get started. God, I, I pray for this time. I thank you for this morning, and I pray that uh, my words would be your words, that this is about you. And uh, even as we look into these stories that are um, really ancient stories, God, uh, let they be rooted in truth and, and allow us to learn the truth of who you are so that everything points back to discovering life that comes from you and you alone. So we thank you and you give you this time. In your name, amen. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 12. If you are new to scripture, if you're new to your Bible, it's the very first book. So this one's an easy one for us all to find. It's right at the beginning and uh, you, as always, are welcome to use your digital form of the Bible if you prefer a tablet or your smartphone. And if, or if you'd like to have a print Bible, we do have them available in the back of the room. It's worth saying week after week that if you don't have your own Bible, you're welcome to take one of those. It's our gift to you. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. But before we get to Genesis chapter 12, I want to spend a few minutes to deal with Genesis chapter 1 through 11. So... If you're familiar with scripture, you'll know that at the beginning of Genesis, uh, some people want us to study that. We've looked at it before, but for the sake of this series, we're not going to get into there's a creation story, and, and I know a lot of people like to debate how, about creation and kind of study that, and that's valuable, but that's not what the point of this series is. But we want to quickly catch you up to speed of what happens in chapters 1 through 11, because in chapter 12, the story takes a turn. 
And that's why we're picking it up in chapter 12. But before we can get there, let's understand the first 11 chapters that really set up the rest of the Bible. So a couple of, one phrase or a series of words I want you to be aware of is this. It's uh, creation, fall, and restoration. So a story that we find repeated throughout Scripture is this theme of creation, or God initiating, beginning something. You have fall, which is... uh, Kind of a church word, but this is talks about sin and how sin enters into the equation. And then restoration or redemption. God is restoring and making things right. And we find in Genesis chapter 1 through 11 sets the, the, the tone for the rest of the entire narrative of Scripture. That's about creation coming from God, fall of mankind and sin, and then his work to redeem and restore. And it's important that we understand that this pattern takes place even in microcosms in our own lives. If you think of God initiating and creating a friendship with you, many of us who, who become followers of Jesus, we put our faith and trust in the work that he did on the cross. We, can, we have made new creations, but sin enters in, but God is always in the business of restoring, forgiving, lifting us back up. This is a, it happens in the pattern of the history of Israel. We see that they turn to God, there's this friendship, there's this faithfulness, and then They do what's right in their own eyes, and sin enters in, and then God restores them. So this happens over and over again. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis establish this theme. Now, you might ask, one question that often comes up is, okay, if God's really a loving God, then what's the big deal about sin? If he really loves his creation, if he really cares about his people, then why should sin be, a pun- be something that he wants to punish? Why is sin enter into this whole story? So I want to take a moment to address that because again, this establishes the character of God and establishes the theme that really we should read this theme, this lens through every time we look at scripture. So first of all, when God creates the universe, he creates it in what we call a state of shalom. It's the Hebrew word for peace. And it says when he creates, uh, first of all, starts with nature, and he creates it and said it is good. And then it says that God creates mankind and says very good. And so creation was made, and it's in a state of perfect peace, or called shalom. Now this idea of shalom or peace is not the way sometimes we think of it. We often think of peace being the lack of conflict. For most of us, if you are a parent, you know that peace for you is the lack of noise or lack of conflict. What our goal half the time is just, I just want some peace. What I mean is just, I don't care how it happens. I don't care if you guys are in different rooms, whatever, or if you all want to play at someone else's house today, awesome. That means peace, right? So, so we have this idea that peace is the lack of conflict, but God actually created peace. He created shalom, and a better way to think of it as it's an active harmony among things. So God creates shalom, and there's a peaceful, harmonious relationship between God and man. It's not the lack of conflict, but it's the presence of harmony. And there's peace, shalom, between mankind. There's no conflict. There's an active sense of harmony. There's even peace between man and creation. So the original story of creation gives us this perfect picture, and it's also a foretaste of what heaven is like. Would God ultimately, once and for all, restore shalom or this act of harmony among his creation and God? So that is how it begins. Now, then sin enters in, which we 
the fall of man, which we say is when sin enters, began with mankind making a choice. Because God made us in his image, he gave us the ability to make choices, to make decisions. And mankind chooses, whether it's symbolic or literal, eat, uh, a choice to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so mankind take, makes this choice, and essentially what we wanted was we wanted to be more like God. We wanted to stand in the seat of judgment. We wanted more power that we couldn't actually handle because we're not perfect, infinite beings. And God said, this is not good for you to have it, but we wanted it. Because as typical among mankind, as we, always, we said, God, what you provide maybe isn't enough. What if there's more? What if it could be better? And so the story begins, we make this choice, and now sin is a part of our heritage. It's a part, the fall. So God creates shalom, we make a choice, and now it's separated. Because we essentially had this rebellion against God. To say, what you have is not enough. And sin enters into the equation. And immediately we find that there's shame, and there's guilt, and there's all the effects of sin that now are part of our world. So, the story is, and then the rest of the story of Scripture is God saying, I'm going to make this right again. So the question, though, is why is this the narrative? Why is sin a big deal? Why did God allow this to happen? Why can't a holy God somehow deal with sin in a way where we don't have to face the consequences of it? So I want to look at a few character traits of God to point to why is this a pattern in Scripture. And the first thing that we need to understand is that God is holy. It means God is perfect. He is infinite. He is the creator of all. He sees all. He knows all. He's all loving, all compassionate, all these things. But God is so utterly different other than us. In our fallen state, uh, when we're created, we already fall short. But now God is holy, and we are unholy people because of sin in our lives. These little acts of rebellion that take place all throughout the week. In a holy God... We cannot stand in the presence of a holy God, and unholy people cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. That's really what happens here. It's just nature. We don't belong. We're not comfortable there. Think of it this way. Has anyone ever had one of those dreams where you show up at a party, and everyone's dressed one way, and you're not? Or everyone's dressed, and you're not, maybe? (laughs) One of those? And and you kind of have this, and, and for some reason in the dream, you can't quite figure out how to fix it, but you're just there, and no one's making a big deal, but you feel stupid the whole time, right? (laughs) I got an amen from that one? All right. Or maybe what if we invited you to a party, and you showed up, and it's northern San Diego, so you show up kind of casually, maybe in a nice t-shirt and jeans and your flip-flops, and you show up at the party, and you realize it was a black tie affair, and everyone else is wearing a tuxedo and they're in evening gowns and they're all dressed really nice. And, and you all of a sudden feel like, do I fit in here? And you walk around and the whole time you'd be super uncomfortable and it, because of this. Now some of you would say, I wouldn't be uncomfortable, I'd be totally fine. But to be honest, in that situation, you feel out of place. And that's a picture of sin, of when we show up before a holy God and we're unholy people We can't stand in the presence of a holy God. We can't. And if we tried to, what are we doing? Even if you showed up at that party and you were not, you didn't fit in, the whole time you would be trying, the attention would be on you. You'd be trying to justify yourself, saying like, well, I didn't get the memo, I'm normally not this way, and you'd be trying to make yourself look like you should belong. And that's the same picture of a sinful person in the presence of a holy God. 
So we start with the narrative. It's important to know that God is holy. Now, also, this is not a holy God where we can sneak in and trick him and somehow fit in, somehow have the, clothes, the right clothes on our own. I, I remember when our first year of marriage, um, my wife and I was working as a youth pastor, and um, her parents came down to visit us, and they wanted to take us out to eat at a five-star restaurant, like the nicest thing. You know, and we were at the time where, like, nice for us was, was probably like Rubio's instead of Taco Bell. You know, that's just like, and so they said five-star restaurant, uh, totally nice dinner, and we thought that would be so great. So I looked it up, and they said a coat required. So I had to wear a sport coat to go out to this place or a suit. And as a young youth pastor, I didn't own a sport coat or a suit. So I realized, okay, if I'm going to fit in, if they're going to let me in, I have to figure this out. The night of the uh, dinner came up, and I still hadn't gotten a coat. So uh, I did what any smart youth pastor would do is I went into our prop closet because uh, we filmed a lot of videos and skits and stuff. So, and I found a really nice sport coat, and I thought, this is perfect. Well, okay, so my wife's not in here, so I get to tell the story the right way. But uh, so <laughs> to me, it was a really nice sport coat. I thought, oh, this will totally work. I think like blue plaid, what's wrong with that? So, um, <laughs> so I took the sport coat. I came home. My wife said, did you get a coat? Yeah, I got a coat. She said, okay, that's fine. And, and I went up. I got ready. I got dressed. I came downstairs, and she saw me. Now, remember, this was our first year of marriage, so she didn't quite say exactly what was on her mind. Um, nowadays, it would be a very different story, um, and, and, and she would have shared a little bit more of what she was actually thinking, but she didn't say much, but in her mind, she was thinking, um, I can't believe that you are wearing this in public with me, and you're going to a nice restaurant, and as we were in, uh, we went to this restaurant, and while we were walking towards it, she looked at me and said, I don't even know if they're going to let you in, <laughs> and, and I thought, well, I, they needed a coat. I have a coat. Why would they not let us in? And I said what my dad always said growing up, I bet they'll take my money. And, and, you know, and so they did let us in. It was no big deal. We went and we sat down. And, uh, and everyone else on the table is dressed really nicely. And I, I like to think of it as I was just really progressive and fashionable. Like I was kind of like hipster 20 years ago. Like I was seeing the future and just dressed, you know, very Hollywood. And so um, we were at this restaurant, and I was dressed in that, and the waiter came with the wine list and the menus, gave everyone their menu, and he looks at me, and he presents me with the wine list. And then when the dinner was over, he came and handed me the bill. Now, why did he do that? It's because I looked so fashionable. I fit in there. <laughs> and I realized that it, this restaurant was outside of Hollywood, and he saw it, and I guarantee, he looked at me and thought, no one would wear that in public unless they're a big deal. And so... <laughs> So somehow they just let me in and he thought I was a big deal. Well, okay, so this is totally off or uh, stretching the analogy, but in a holy God, you can't trick your way in <laughs> to his presence. You can't trick your way into a holy God. We're unholy people. We can't stand in his presence. So we need to know from scripture that God is holy. And the second thing is this, God is just. He's a just God. He's fair. He has order to his ways. He doesn't do things that are arbitrary. And because God is a holy God, and he is just and fair, that means that unholy people can't stand in his presence without a price being paid for admission. In fact, using the story of wearing the wrong clothes, there's scripture where Jesus said, we're told that we are clothed in Christ. You want to be able to fit into the banquet with the king, we're now clothed in Christ. He, he gives us what we need to fit in, but because God is just, an unholy people 
can't stand in his presence because he's fair. And he says, it doesn't work that way. In fact, the very first sin in Genesis chapter 3, when mankind sins, it says that they were naked and, unashamed, uh, naked and unashamed, and then when they sinned, they felt shame and realized they were naked. And it was symbolic of their guilt. And the first thing that God did is he killed an animal and used the skin of the animal to make clothes for Adam and Eve. The very first sin resulted in a price that had to be paid to cover up their guilt and their shame. And so God is a God of order. So from the very beginning, sin resulted in something paying the price to cover the shame. Ultimately, that would be God in flesh, Jesus Christ, who comes and pays the ultimate price for all of mankind. Once and for all ends that temporary system. But because God is a God of order and God is a God who is just, he knew mankind cannot be fully restored to me without a significant price being paid. Because he's just, because he's so fair. But here's the good news of this. So God is holy, God is just, but God is good. He's also good. And because God is good, he said a price needs to be paid, so here's what I'm going to do. I am going to begin a plan, put a plan in place that I will pay the price that mankind never can pay on their own. So from the very beginning, we see that God is a God of grace. See, a lot of us believe when we read through Scripture, if you've read through Scripture, that in the Old Testament, is, there's one type of God, and in the New Testament, He changes personalities and becomes all gracious and loving and compassionate. But the truth is, from the very beginning, God is a God who's gracious, loving, and compassionate. From the very beginning, He never changes. And so He's always been good. So he makes a way for us. So it's important that these things are in our mind when we read through scripture. It's important that these things are in our mind when we read through the story and learn about the God of our fathers. That he is holy, he is just, and he is good. He is good. So when we read these stories, you're going to find people who you say, seriously, these are our forefathers of faith, of the, excuse me, of the faith, but because God is good, he works with them. So, now, chapters 1 through 11 is a story of a holy, a just, and a good God making creation and watching things kind of, in a way, fall apart. And then beginning a plan to say, I'm going to restore you. In fact, we find by chapters 10 and 11, there's this famous story of the Tower of Babel. And it says that mankind gathered together. They built a tower and they said, let's build a tower that goes all the way up to heaven and let's make a name for ourselves which is in direct contrast to Genesis chapter 1 when God said, scatter throughout the earth and make a name for me. Mankind's tendency is, no, let's make a name for ourselves. So what we find is this pattern of selfishness that's happened for the first 11 chapters. Now in chapter 12, everything takes a turn. In chapter 12, we have an introduction of a new character named Abram. We know him as Abraham. He's the father of the three world's monotheistic faiths of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all trace their roots back to Abraham, to this story in chapter 12. To a person who, out of nowhere, we're introduced to him in scripture, and God calls him to be his own people, to start a new nation. It's his own family. Out of nowhere. We don't even know why God calls Abraham. Later we learn that something about his heart was credited to him. He had faith in the God who called him. But we don't know what, what qualified him. We don't know what it was. All we know is the sky is ca called. And God said, I want to now 
The next step of my plan of restoring creation to myself is I need a people group. So God creates a brand new nation through whom this nation, he can communicate his character, his goodness, his grace to the rest of creation. So let's look at Genesis chapter 12 and see the introduction of Abraham and where the story all turns. Starts like this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And again, this is basically out of nowhere. We've only heard Abram's name once, and it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and his Lot, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they've accumulated, all their persons which they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. So out of nowhere, we have this family that's called out of this area called the, Cal- the Chaldean, and he's called to go into a new land. Now, for those of you who are visual, let me, we just have a map for you to kind of get your eyes and uh, minds around this journey. Um, Some of you, you may not know anything about geography, so just smile and nod for a moment. So uh, this map, though, if you look to that green area on the left is uh, the Euphrates uh, River Valley. This is in modern-day Iraq, and so that is likely near the south there. Towards the bottom of that is where Abraham was from and where he began his journey and followed it all the way up the river valley to the top there where there were some camels apparently waiting for him and they uh they crossed over um in what would be modern day turkey syria the north of syria and then headed south on the left part of your map that green that's the modern day country of israel and headed south down that way about 400 miles total for his journey so and, and the reason why i want you to see this is to see, one, the scope of how far they tr- he traveled, but also it's important that we understand the land from which he came from. And the land, uh, we'd often refer to this as Mesopotamia, if those of you who like um, history or archaeology or anything. And so that is where uh, Abraham first came from. This is a land that was filled with, there was gods for everything. There's the goddess of f- fertility, there was gods of the rain, there was sun, there were multiple gods they would worship, and through scripture then we would call this a pagan country, a country that was not a follower of the one creator God. In fact, at this point, it was hard to know if anyone was anymore. So he's called out of that, and that's where the journey begins, and it takes us to the left side of the map in modern day Israel, where, where we see him enter the land today. Now, back to the story. So why does God call Abram? Why does he, let's look at these commands that he gives them. First of all, I already mentioned that he wanted to call a people group for his own. And the reason really was, was because God wanted to communicate to the rest of creation about his character, about his nature, and one day there will be a future Messiah. And he needed to begin, it was like having a fresh start. A new nation, a new country that didn't have a past. They weren't worshiping multiple gods. There wasn't a past of of violence and that that history that was a part of who they were. He said, we are going to begin new. I will begin a new nation that I can communicate who I am to the rest of the nation. So let's look at this now. Genesis chapter 12 again. There's two commands that Abraham receives. The first command 
that we see here is to go. The very first thing he says, go forth from your country, from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I show you. So the first command that God gives Abraham, part of this story, part of this neighborhood, the command is to go. And he says, go forth from your country. This represented his identity. This represented, it was his language, it was his customs, it was his ritual, it was his nation. Leave here. Leave the things that are giving you your identity, Abraham. I'm starting something new with you. And it's interesting that in uh, verse 2, the thing he says is first he says, go forth from your country, I will make you into a great nation. So there's a promise attached to this. The next piece of it is, go from your relatives. Leave your family. And this represented his security. Your family was, you know, it takes a tribe to raise a child, right? It takes a village to raise a child. Your family was there for your strength, for your security. If someone was going to attack you, you would have your family, your tribe there with you. So leaving your family meant leaving the thing that gave you your security and gave you strength. So he tells them, leave your security behind. And then the third thing on the go, he says, go forth from your father's house. And this represented his prosperity, his legacy. He one day would inherit his father's land and his father's house and pass it on and his name would continue. But God calls him and says, I want you to leave that too. The thing that you're clinging on to that will give you value into your future. That's going to make you who you think is your strength. So we find when God calls Abraham out, he's essentially saying, all those things that you're building your life upon, I want you to leave that because from this point forward, I want you to build your life upon me. I want you to look to me to find that that is enough. This is very much symbolic in pointing us to our lives in Christ today. We're called not to move out of our home, not to move out of our country, not to... Never talk to your family again. We have a different call now. But the same of those three statements of giving up that, your identity is no longer in your old self, in your accomplishments, in your failures. That's gone. Your prosperity, thinking, God, I need to make a name for myself that will last. That's gone. It's all now wrapped up in Christ. Your security, what gives us security? It's wrapped up in Christ now. Pastor John Piper speaking about this and says this, when faith stands In front of a mirror, the mirror becomes a window and sees on the other side, it sees the glory of Christ. The decisive alternative to saying that I am all, in other words, I have all I need, I have my identity, my security, my all of that. The alternative to saying I am all is not to say I am nothing, but to say Christ is all. Faith looks to Christ, not to self, not even your new self. In fact, the definition of the new self is the self that looks to Christ as its Savior and Lord and treasure and joy and satisfaction. What Abraham was faced with here was a choice to no longer look to himself and his circumstances, but to look to God who's just called him to a new country. So he gives him that first command and says, go. Now, he gives him a second command, and in English we miss it. So those of you who like to read this in Hebrew, you would have already picked up on it. So it's, it's at the end of chapter two, uh, end of verse 2 in chapter 12. When it, and God says, and so you will be a blessing, is what most of our English translations say. This is actually a command in, in Hebrew. It's a command that says, you now go be a blessing. So the first command was to go, to leave all this behind. The second command was, be a blessing. 
be a blessing, it's actually a command. And when he tells them to be a blessing, this is the idea now that the beginning of the story of God's people, his nation, is not a selfish thing. It was not something where there's a chosen people and later the Christians are grafted into this family that somehow we have a special status and everyone else is inferior and below a a special people. Now that we know Christ, we are superior to everyone else. No, 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 the story is I have called you out. Now guess what? Be a blessing. Don't keep this to yourself. I'm not calling you as a people group. I'm not gathering you together so that you can just make yourselves great and feel better. It is because I want the world to be blessed through you, other people through my people. In fact, the story of being a blessing is uh, two things that happen when we bless. One is hope is displayed through God's people. From the very first family, when he calls Abraham, the point was that hope could be displayed in him because left to mankind and ourselves, there wasn't a lot of hope. We don't often project hope as people. And so God says, through you, hope is going to be displayed. For us today, it's the same. I was encouraged this week when I was reading in the USA Today, which I I think is a Christian publication. And um, and, and this article actually was about faith-based groups are doing the most good in disaster relief. And actually, this is, in the USA Today, talked about how 75 to 80% of all the work that even FEMA, our federal government, does in disaster relief, like for hurricanes, is run and filtered through faith-based groups. For churches, through Christians. It even talks about the fact that churches are networked together, that there's something bigger that's calling them together, and that they can actually get help to people faster. And saying that when, the, when Hurricane Harvey hit a few weeks ago, that the churches were doing work the very same day, and, and organizations that were faith-based were sending help on the trucks while the hurricane was still hitting. And saying the federal government can't do what the faith-based organizations are doing. This was in USA Today, by the way. And of course, there's a lot of really helpful comments underneath that, as people like to say stuff. But the point was, this is what it means to be a blessing. This is what it means for God to say, I have called you to bless. I've called you to make a difference. My people are putting my life on display the way you live. And this is a perfect picture of the way it's it's supposed to be, the way it should look. When the family of God says we are going to put hope on display. The other piece of this is ultimately hope will be ultimately be given through Jesus Christ. God calls Abraham and starts a new nation. And he says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And by the way, this is not like some sort of um, like Lord of the Rings type of thing. This is uh, talking about the people who are for God, against God. And, and then he goes and he says, And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, Abraham, something special is going to happen in your family. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. This is a prophecy that through this family that a Messiah will come and for the benefit of all mankind not just his family. All the families of the earth will ultimately have the opportunity to be restored in the relationship and their friendship with the creator God through Abraham. This is pointing to Jesus Christ. 
So the first family is called. Abraham responds. And the point was, he's told to go to find his new security and identity in God and to be a blessing. Now in verse 4 through 9, it's pretty encouraging. Abraham actually responds in faith. He steps out and does something that was unexpected. He says, yes, I will go. And he goes and he sets up an altar to God and calls on the name of him, of the Lord, it says, meaning he established this new faith and in, in the midst of others and said, we are going to worship this Yahweh, creator God in the land. There's a new God and hope is on display. So he immediately responds in faith. But the story goes on, and this is what gets me, and we don't have time to look at all the details, but starting in verse 10 of this very same chapter, when Abraham just left everything and said, I will find all I need in you, God. In verse 10, it says there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So please, say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. The father of our faith just did this great thing. He left it all. He said, God, everything I need is in you. And then the very next moment... He's in Egypt, and he goes, my wife is smoking hot. They're going to kill me. So, hey, honey, can you do me a favor and just tell everyone you're my sister? <laughs> now, um, young adults, young marrieds, if you guys want some relationship advice, I'm going to give some, okay? Here, here, it's coming. If ever you have a great idea and it involves telling people that your wife is your sister, it's a bad idea, okay? Just right there, just... just Put that thought out. Don't even say, but honey, it's biblical. No, just, <laughs> this is not a good example. So the very next thing that happens in his faith is he freaks out and he wants to preserve his own life. So he says, tell them you're my sister. And God intervenes in the story. He preserves him. Now, why did Abraham do it? Did he do that because he thought, well, God called me. He promised to start a new nation through me, so I, I, I'm kind of a big deal. I need to live. If I die, then what? Maybe that's what he's thinking. I think he probably was thinking, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to die. Let's just figure it out right now. But here's the thing. Do you think God knew that Abraham was going to do that? Do you think God knew, if he's all-knowing, did he know Abraham's heart? I think he did. I think when God calls Abraham and sees his great faith and sees him respond and he's the example of faith for all of us, I think he's also saying to the angels like, oh wait, it gets better, keep watching. <laughs> and the very next thing is Abraham does this bonehead stupid thing. Which by the way, he does again in a few chapters. But God still calls him. See, when we started, God is holy. And God is just. But God is good. And we're studying the God of our fathers in this series. 
So God looks into your life, into mine, and he looks at us and says, okay, just wait. Here's something stupid coming up. Just wait. Oh, my goodness. But his love for you and for me is still there. His grace has already met you in that place. What Jesus Christ did on the cross has already taken care of that next bonehead moment. It's done. It's done. And he never changes. And he still calls you and he calls me to be his people. The people who bring hope to the world. To be a blessing to those who we encounter. Us imperfect people, just like our father Abraham. It's good news for us. I want to invite the worship team to make their way up as we end. And today, it's only appropriate that we're going to end our time of worship in a time of what we call communion. And we have four tables set up around the room here where we're going to take communion. And for us, communion is a remembrance of Jesus Christ and what He did for us. Again, God is holy, and so we were separated from Him, but, and He is just, so a price needed to be paid, so He is good, and He came and paid that price. And so for us, communion is a rem- remembrance of that price that was paid. And so in a moment, we'll invite you to go to the tables at your uh, own pace. You may go by yourself. You may go with someone else, your whole family. You can pray together. You can just sit in silence wherever you want, however you want to take this time. But when we take the bread, the bread for us is symbolic of the life of Christ, the body of Christ that was broken for us. It was the price that was paid for you and for me because God is good. It was a price that was paid for Abraham when he failed to trust and have faith and when he tried taking matters into his own hand, that price was paid for his sin. And so we take the bread, we remembered what Jesus did, and then we take the cup, which is symbolic of his blood, which is symbolic of this covenant that he made, agreement that he made with us to say, I am good, I will take care of you once and for all through my life my death, and my resurrection. I will give you the power you need. I will give you a new life. And you can find all you need in me. So when you're ready, we have two songs. Take your time. Find one of the tables and take communion and remember that this story began when creation began. The story began when mankind fell and sinned. And our good God has been telling the story of restoration and redemption ever since. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this time. I thank you so much that the story doesn't end with us doing something stupid and you wiping us out. I thank you that the story doesn't end at every mistake. I thank you that in your life and your death and resurrection that You fulfilled this story and redemption and restoration is now available to us once and for all. And so we thank you for that. And I ask that God now that as we remember and reflect on that time, that Lord, would you speak clearly to us? And Lord, would you empower us to be a blessing to others? To bring the hope that comes only from you. And so we thank you now and we just give you this time, Lord. And we trust you for all that we need. Amen.